WBUR Podcasts, Boston. You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form, and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. If you want more from the show you're hearing, jump over to that show's feed and hit subscribe or follow. Thanks for listening. We don't have a healthcare system. We have thousands of healthcare systems and a lot of special interests. That's where the promise of AI really comes in. The United States spends more on healthcare than any other country in the world. But Americans are not as healthy as people living in other rich nations. Could artificial intelligence change all that? Applying AI and machine learning, all things are possible. The AI is really helping guide both the app and then all the way through the care delivery is going to change today, tomorrow, and next week. So we have a tool to decrease any individual's chance of going blind from their diabetes. The algorithm is better than any individual ophthalmologist. AI can actually pretty accurately predict when people are actually going to die. But what are the trade-offs? How would you feel if you learned that your loved one's death in the ER was being used to train an algorithm and nobody asked your loved one or asked you? I don't think anyone is sure yet whether or not AI will lower the cost basis of care. Technology should not replace the physician-patient relationship. It should enhance it. The potential that exists has to go along with an ethical and moral compass. Because if we don't, we're going to create a little bit of a Frankenstein monster. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Welcome to an on-point special series, Smarter Health, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of American Healthcare. An algorithm doesn't, you know, raise its hand and pledge the Hippocratic Oath. Clinicians do. We are the ones who pledge the oath. That means we're responsible for the algorithm as well. Episode 3, The Regulators. Over the four months and dozens of interviews that went into this series, one thing became clear, because just about everyone said it to us. Artificial intelligence has enormous potential to improve health care if a lot of things don't go enormously wrong. Doctors, scientists, programmers, advocates, they all talk to us about the important need to, quote, mitigate the risks, to create comprehensive standards for evaluating if AI tools are even doing what they claim to do, to avoid what could easily go wrong. In short, to regulate and put up guardrails on how AI is used in healthcare. For now, the task of creating those guardrails falls to the Food and Drug Administration. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. She's also author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became a Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Dr. Rosenthal, welcome back to On Point. Thanks for having me. So let's get right to it. Do you think, Dr. Rosenthal, that the FDA, as it is now, can effectively regulate artificial intelligence algorithms in healthcare? Well, it's scrambling to keep up with the explosion of algorithms. And the problem I see is that the explosion is great. It's mostly driven by startups, venture capital, looking for profit. And, um, you know, with a lot of promises, but very little question about 
how is this going to be used? So what the FDA does and what companies try to do is just get their stuff approved by the FDA so they can get it out into the market. And then how it's used in the market is all over the place. And, you know, AI has enormous potential, but enormous potential for misuse and poor use and to substitute for good healthcare. Okay, so that explosion in the uh, use and potential of healthcare, FDA is really uh, aware of just that simple fact. We spoke with Dr. Matthew Diamond, who's the chief medical officer of the Digital Health Center for Ex- of Excellence at FDA, and we're going to hear uh, quite a few clips from my interview with him over the course of today's program. Uh, we spoke with him late last month, and he talked about a significant challenge for the FDA in regulating AI. It's important to appreciate that uh, the current regulatory framework that we have right now for medical devices was designed for more of a a hardware-based world. So we're seeing a rapid growth of AI-enabled products, and um, we have taken an approach to explore what an ideal uh, regulatory paradigm would look like to be in sync with the natural life cycle of medical device software in general, and as you mentioned, AI specifically. Dr. Rosenthal, I mean, just to bring it down to a very basic level, FDA regulates drugs and devices. The regulatory schemes for both are are different because drugs are different than devices. It seems as if FDA is going down the track of seeing software as a device. But do you think it has the expertise in place uh, to, uh, to, to, to even do that effectively? Well, it's, it's not what it was set up to do. Remember when the FDA started regulating devices, it was for things like tongue depressors, um, you know, and then it moved on to defibrillators and things like that. But, um, you know, the software expertise is out there in tech land and in tech believers. And so it's very hard to regulate. And much of the AI stuff that's getting approved is approved uh, through something called the 510K pathway, which means you just have to show that the device, in this case, an AI program or an AI-enabled device, is similar uh, to something that's already on the market. And uh, so you get a kind of copycat approval and what is similar, one that didn't have an AI, was sorry, one that wasn't AI enabled, um, in some cases that appears to be the track. And then what they ask for uh, subsequently is real world evidence that it's working. Um, the FDA has not been good historically in drugs or devices um, at following up and demanding the real world evidence from companies. And frankly, you know, companies, once they have something out there in the market, they don't really want evidence that maybe it doesn't work as well as they thought originally. So they bury, they're, they're, they're not very good at, at making the effort to collect it because it's costly. Mm. You know, um, from my, my layperson's perspective here, one of the biggest challenges that I see is that the world of software development outside of of healthcare is a world where for a lot of good reasons what's the phrase that came out of silicon valley perpetual beta right it's like mm-hmm. it's, right. It's the software is continuously being developed as it's in the market right we're all using right. software that gets literally updated every day how many times i have to do that on my phone i can't tell you but in healthcare it's very very different right the risks of that that constant development um 
they can be considerable because you're talking about the care of patients here. Do you have a sense that the FDA has a framework in mind or any experience in with that kind of paradigm where it's not just, you know, a tool that they have to give preclearance for and then the machine gets updated two years later and then they give clearance for that too. It seems like a completely different world. Yes, it is. And they announced last September a kind of framework for looking at these kind of things and asked for comment. And, you know, when you look at the comments, they're mostly from companies developing uh, these AI programs who kind of want the, the oversight minimized. It was a little bit like, trust us, make it easy to update. And, you know, I can tell you, for example, on my car, which auto, which automatically updates its software, each time it updates, I can't find the windshield wipers. You know, that's not good. So uh, there's, there's tremendous uh, potential for good in AI, but also tremendous potential for confusion. And I think another issue is often the goals of, of, of some of these new AI products is to, um, quote unquote, you know, make healthcare cheaper. So for example, one recent product is um, an AI enabled echocardiogram. So you don't need a doctor to do it. You could have a nurse or a lay person to do it. Well, um, I'm sorry, uh, there are there are enough cardiologists in the United States that everyone should be able to get a cardiologist doing their echocardiogram. We just have a, a very dysfunctional healthcare system where that's not the case. So, uh, you know, AI may deliver good healthcare, but not quite as good as a physician in some cases. In other cases, it claims to do better. You know, it can detect, it can detect polyps and a colonoscopy better than a physician. But I guess the question is, are the things that it's detecting clinically significant or just things yeah. that, you know, I, and, and there, there's so, these questions are so fraught. So, you know, I'm all in for a hybrid approach that combines a real person and AI. But so many times the, the, the claims are this is going to replace a person. Mm. And I think that's not good. Yeah, that's actually going to be one of the centers of our of focus for us in our fourth and final episode in this series. But, you know, the thing about AI and healthcare and regulation that um, seem, it seems to me to be the perfect distillation of a constant challenge that regulators have. Technology is always going to outpace what the current regulatory framework is. That, that, that doesn't seem to me to be a terrible thing. That's just what it is. But in healthcare, you don't really want the gap to be so, too big because in that gap, what we have are the, the lives of patients. And, you know, we've spoken to people, uh, Glenn Cohen at Harvard Law School was with us last week, and he said he sees a problem in that the vast majority in, of algorithms to potentially used in healthcare, um, FDA wouldn't even ever see them because uh, they there would be the kinds of things the hospitals could just could just implement without FDA approval. And he talked about talked with us about um, that FDA just isn't set up to be a software first kind of regulator. Now, uh, Dr. Matthew Diamond at FDA, when we talked to him, he actually acknowledged that, and and here's what he said. What we have found is that we can't move to a, a really more modern regulatory framework, uh, one that would truly be fit for purpose for modern day software technologies without changes in federal law. You know, there is an increasing realization that uh, if this is not addressed, there will be some critical regulatory hurdles uh, in the digital health space in years to come. 
Dr. Rosenthal, we have about 30 seconds before our first break, but uh, just your quick response to that. Well, I think there is there is a big expertise divide. You know, the people who develop these software algorithms tend to be tech people and not in medicine. And the FDA is, doesn't have these tech people on board because the money is all in the industry, not in the regulatory space. Mm. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about a little bit more about the guidelines or the beginnings of guidelines that the FDA has put out and how really what's needed more deeply here is maybe a different kind of mindset, a new regulatory approach when it comes to AI and healthcare. What would that mindset need to include? That's what we'll talk about when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and you're listening to Episode 3 of our special series, Smarter Health, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of American Healthcare. And today, we're talking about regulation. Healthcare is already a heavily regulated industry, but do we have the right thinking, the right frameworks, the right capacity in place at the level of state and federal government to adequately regulate the kinds of changes that artificial intelligence could bring to healthcare. Dr. Kedar Mate is CEO of the nonprofit Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and here's what he had to say We need regulatory agencies to help ensure that our technology creators and our providers and our payers are disclosing the uses of AI uh, and helping patients understand them. I absolutely believe that we need to have this space developed. And, and yet I don't think we have the muscle yet uh, built to do that. 
I'm joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. And joining us now is Professor Finale doshi Velez. She's Gordon McKay Professor of Computer Science at Harvard University, and she leads the Data to Actionable Knowledge Group at Harvard Computer Science, where they address many of the decision-making scenarios or take a look at them that come up between humans and artificial intelligence. Professor doshi Velez, welcome to you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to actually start with an example when talking about the kinds of um, mindset that you think think needs to come in or evolved into regulation when it comes to AI and healthcare. And this example comes from Dr. Ziad Obermeyer, who's out in California, because he told us in a previous episode about something interesting that had happened. They had done this study on um, uh, al- a family of algorithms that was being used to examine health records for like hundreds of millions of people. And they found out that um, the algorithm was supposed to evaluate who was going to get sick. But what it, how it was doing that was actually evaluating or predicting who's going to cost the healthcare system yes. the most. So it was, it was actually answering a different question entirely. And no one really looked at that until his group did this analysis, external analysis. So I wonder what that tells you about the kinds of Um, thinking that goes into developing algorithms and whether regulators recognize that thinking? Yeah, it's such an important question. And the example you gave is perfect because many times we just think about the model. But there's an entire system that goes into the model. There's the inputs that are used to train the model, as you're saying. And many times we don't have a measure of health. Like, what does it mean to be healthy? So we stick in something else, like costly. Clearly, someone who's using the system a lot costing the system a lot, you know, they're sick. And that's true. But there's a lot of other sick people who, for whatever reasons, are not also getting access to care and are not showing up. So I think the first step there is really transparency. If we knew what our algorithms were really trained to predict, we might say, hey, there might be some problems here. Um, One other thing that I'll bring up in terms of mindset is also how people use these algorithms. Because the algorithms don't act in a void. And once the recommendation comes out, how people use them, do they over-rely on them, I think is another really important systems issue, right? The algorithm isn't treating the patient. The doctor is using the algorithm to treat the patient. Okay, so systems issue here. So there's a kind of a, in in, in computer science, a systems mindset that you're, it sounds like you're calling for that that needs to be integrated into regulation. But tell me a little bit more about what that system mindset looks like. Exactly. So we've done some studies in our group and many other people have done similar studies that show that if you give people some information, a recommendation, um, they're busy and they're just going to follow the recommendation. Hey, that drug looks about right. Great. Let's go for it. And they'll even say the the algorithm is fantastic. They're like, this is so so useful. It's reducing my work. Um, We've done a study where we gave bad recommendations um, and people didn't notice because, uh, you know, it, they were they were just going through and, and doing the study. And uh, it's really important to make sure that when we put a system out there and say, oh, but of course the doctor will catch any issues. They may not because they may be really busy. Mm, okay. So Dr. Rosenthal, respond to that because the, it sounds to me, and both either both of you, please correct me if, if and I say anything that's a little bit off base, but it sounds to me that um, sort of the, the established methods of developing a drug, let's say, or even building a medical device, um, 
involve a way of thinking that doesn't 100% overlap with, um, with, with software development. Not 100%. And is that, a, is that a problem, Dr. Rosenthal? Well, I, I think it is because most drugs are designed um, with a disease in mind, not necessarily to save money. And I think a lot of – I get pitches for AI stuff in medicine every day. Look at my great new startup. And most of what they're claiming is that it will save money. And I think that's, that's the wrong metric to use, but that's the common metric that's used now because most of these devices and most of these AI programs come out of the business space, not the medical space. And I, I think many of them are claiming you don't need the doctor really to, to check and see if it's right or not. And I'll say I haven't practiced medicine in many years, but, you know, kind of diagnosis is, is very holistic and you can check all the boxes uh, for one diagnosis and look at a patient and say, nope, that's not the right one. Mm. Uh, Professor Doshi Velez, did you want to respond to that? I think that's a great point and goes back to the point that you made earlier that we really need doctors in the loop. These are not replacements. Okay. You know, I was looking at the um, the there's, the FDA in 2019 put out a paper. It's the Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning Discussion Paper um, that they put out. And it, in a sense, they, they have offered kind of an early initial flow for decision making uh, at FDA on how to regulate um, – software as a medical device, which is how they call it, which is what they call it. Um, and the first part of the flow is actually um, determining whether I'm looking, I'm looking at it right now, determining whether the culture and qual uh, culture of quality and organizational excellence of the company developing the AI reaches some kind of standard that, uh, that FDA wants. In other words, do they have good machine learning practices? And as the computer scientist at the table, Professor Doshi Velez, I'm wondering what you think about that. I think that's critical. I, I think ultimately there's a lot of questions that you would want to ask of a company as they go through developing these devices or software as medical devices. And I think the good news is that there are procurement checklists that are being made. Um, Canada has an AI directive. World Economic Forum recently put out a set of guidelines um, and these basically go through all the questions you should ask a company when you're thinking about, you know, using an AI device, and they're quite comprehensive. Okay, so and so the who would and who would ask those questions? So in this case, it's if you're someone who's buying an AI, it's public sector buying an AI. What would you consider? Okay, got it. All right, so so I wanted to we wanted to understand a little bit more about um, what the process is right now at FDA. I mean, it's still under development for sure. Um, but a couple of, at least some uh, 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 artificial intelligence programs or platforms have received um, FDA approval. And so we reached out to a company that's been through the process. And so we spoke with Nathan Gurgle. He is director of enterprise imaging product marketing at Fujifilm Healthcare, America's corporation. I look at it as kind of like autopilot on an airline. It probably could land the plane, but we as humans and as the FAA feel more comfortable having a pilot. It's the same way for AI and, and imaging. The FDA, you know, really has very specific guidelines about being able to show efficacy within the AI algorithms and making sure that the radiologists are really the ones that are in charge. 
So you might be old enough like me to think of Fujifilm as a photograph and imaging company, uh, which, in fact, it is. And Fuji is actually taking that imaging expertise and applying it pretty aggressively to AI and healthcare. So they've developed a platform that they say enables AI imaging algorithms to be used more effectively by radiologists and cardiologists. And uh, the FDA certified Fujifilm's platform last year. It's called Rayleigh. And Gurgle told us that getting that FDA certification, actually the process began at Fujifilm. The company did its own deep review of current FDA guidelines to evaluate their own product. And then they went through a pre-certification process with FDA. You can actually meet with them and say, this is what our understanding is of the guidance and, and how we're interpreting that. And then you can get feedback from them to say, yes, you're interpreting that, or maybe we want to see something a little bit different within some of your study or your evaluation process. And so that that gives you some confidence before you do the actual submission. Gurgel said the process was beneficial for Fujifilm and it led to certification. But he also said there's still a lot for the FDA to learn about the technology it's tasked with regulating. In particular, the FDA needs to increase its technical understanding of how AI works to process and identify findings in imaging software. I felt like and do feel like in that area that that is a learning process for the FDA of understanding what that in, entails and, and how that uh, can potentially influence the end users, and in our case would be the radiologists, within their uh, analysis of the imaging. Now, Gurgle also told us that Fujifilm, of course, is a global company. And so that means they have experience with AI regulations in several different countries, making it easier for them to bring AI products to market. We have it in use right now within Japan, but when we are bringing it into the U.S., we are required to go through reader studies. So we have radiologists take a look at that, that Really what they are doing is proving the efficacy of that AI algorithm and making sure it provides and is meeting the needs of the radiology and the radiology user and making sure that when we bring it to the U.S. that it also is trained and is useful within the patient population within the U.S. Now, another important distinction, Gurgle points out that right now FDA regulates static algorithms. They don't, these algorithms don't automatically update with new information. They're working on a new regulatory framework for that. And F, and Gurgle said FDA does need to continue to develop guidelines for those. Is there ever going to be the ability for these medical processing AI algorithms to update themselves? And where is the oversight for that? So as they go through and, and make changes and, and they hopefully improve themselves. Do the radiologists still agree with that? Are there, you know, still the same efficacy that was brought forward when the AI algorithm was first introduced into the market? So I think that's the big question mark at this point is how and when do we get to that automatic machine learning or deep learning? So that's Nathan Gurgle, Director of Enterprise Image Product Marketing at Fujifilm Healthcare, America's Corporation. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, what do you hear, hear in that process that Gurgle just described to us? Well, I, I hear the same problem the FDA has with with uh, drugs and devices generally, part which are, um, y- you know, companies bring drugs and devices to the FDA. 
the companies do the studies they present to the FDA. In the case of drugs, you know, the FDA convenes these expert panels. Who are going to be the expert, expert panels for AI programs? That's going to be a hard lift, and they haven't said whether they're going to have those. So, um, and again, there's this question of the safe and effective standard. Effective compared to what? It's why we in the United States have a lot of drugs that are effective compared to nothing, but not effective compared to other drugs. So, uh, you know, are we talking about effective, more effective than a really good physician or more effective than a not very good physician or more effective than nothing? So I think, um, you know, some of these problems are endemic to the FDA's charter. Um, and they're going to multi- they're just multiplied by the complexity of AI. Oh, fascinating. Uh, Professor Doshi Velez, I see you nodding your head. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, uh, I agree with this question of like, compared to what, right? Um, and I think a lot of the promise of AI, well, in imaging, if I, first is to automate like boring tasks, like finding uninteresting things. But when it comes to like finding, you know, those polyps or those issues in the images, there's a lot of places that don't have great access to those experts. And so there's a lot of potential for good if you take someone who's average and can give them some pointers and make them excellent. Right. Um, But that just comes into transparency. It's really important that we know exactly what standard this meets. Transparency, indeed. But so let me just first quickly, Dr. Rosenthal I, I hear both of you when you say, you know, how effective compared to what? So who, but so who should be setting the guidelines for that to answer that that question? Should that be coming from FDA? Can it? Should it be coming from the companies? I mean, how? It's an important question. How do we begin to answer it? Well, the FDA isn't allowed to make that decision uh-huh. right now, so um, that's that's an you know an endemic problem there. Um, and we don't have a good mechanism in this country to think about that and to think about, again, um, appropriate use. You know, yes, maybe a device that's pretty good at screening, but not as good as seeing a, a specialist at the Mayo Clinic is really useful in, in places where you don't have access to specialists. But, um, and that's where transparency comes in. But do you really want to trust the companies that are making money from these devices and these programs to say, well, we think it's, you know, this effective or not. We just don't have a good way to measure that at the moment. Okay. So then we've only got you for another minute and a half or so, Dr. Rosenthal. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think the next steps should be? Like, what would you, because there's no doubt that AI is going to continue to be developed for healthcare. The market is just too big and lucrative. Like, look, we have to talk about, we're talking about American healthcare here. You wrote a whole book about it, right? Um, uh, so, so that's going to happen. But it's up to us, as you know, the country and uh, our representative regulatory bodies, to try to do what we can to be sure it's developed in the best interests of everyone. So, what would you like to see happen in the next year or five years to help set those guardrails? Oh, that's such a huge problem because I don't think we have the right expertise or the right agency at the moment to, to think about in, in particularly in our healthcare system, which is very disaggregated and balkanized. And, you know, AI has tremendous potential for good, but it also has 
tremendous but misuse. So I think we need some really large scale thinking, maybe a different kind of agency. Uh, maybe the FDA's initial charter is due for um, rethinking. But at the moment, I just don't think there's a good place to do it. Yeah. And you know, the potential for AI to change things, not just in healthcare, but in so many other aspects of life, it may actually down the road require a new kind of agency altogether, as you said. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News and author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Dr. Rosenthal, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Professor Finelli Doshi Velez, stand by here for just a second. We have to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what some other countries uh, and other parts of the world are trying to do when it comes to creating a new regulatory framework for AI and healthcare, and how much of those lessons can be applicable here in the U.S. healthcare system. So we'll talk about that in a moment. This is On Point. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode three of our special series, Smarter Health, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of American Healthcare. And today we're talking about regulation or the new kind of framework, mindset, or even agency that the United States might need to effectively regulate how AI could change American Healthcare. I'm joined today by Professor Finale Doshi Velez. She's the Gordon McKay Professor of Computer Science at Harvard University, and she leads the Data to Actionable Knowledge Group at Harvard Computer Science as well. Now, here again is Dr. Kedar Mate, CEO of the nonprofit Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and he talked with us about how regulators can use the expertise in the industry to develop guidelines to regulate AI. I think some of this, by the way, can be done collaboratively with the industry. This doesn't need to be a confrontational thing between regulatory agencies you know, versus industry. I think actually industry is setting standards today about how to build uh, algorithms, how to build bias-free algorithms, how to build transparency in the process, how to build provider disclosure, et cetera. And a lot of that can be shared with the regulatory agencies to help power the first set of standards and uh, re- regulatory rules around the industry. Professor Doshi Velez, you know, I wonder if even thinking of this as um, how do we build regulation is maybe not the best way to think about it. Because regulation to me feels very downstream. Should we, when we talk about mindset, should we be thinking more upstream? And, and should really one of the purposes of government be to tell AI developers, well, here are the requirements that we have, like, the kinds of data you use to train the algorithm, or um, here's what we require regarding transparency, things like that, that are further upstream. Um, would that be a different and perhaps more effective way to look at what's needed? 100% agreed that having requirements earlier in the process would be super helpful. And I also would say that it needs to be a continual process because these systems are not going to be for- perfect the first time. They're going to need to be updated. And we've talked about the algorithm gathering data to update itself, but also the data changes under your feet. Um, you know, people change, processes used in medical centers change, and all of a sudden your algorithms go out of whack. So it does need to be a somewhat collaborative process of, of 
continually how, you know, where are your requirements? How are you going to change? What are you going to disclose so everyone else can notice? Because um, as was noted before, it may not be in the company's interest or even the, the purchaser's interest to be monitoring closely. But if certain things need to be disclosed, then at least it's out there for the public okay. to be able to see. Okay. So, so, so now, you know, we like to sort of occasionally leave the United States and learn from examples abroad. And I'd really like to do that in, in this situation. So let's hop over to Cyprus, because that's where Janos Tolias is joining us from. And Janos is the legal lead on AI and AI liability in healthcare for the European Commission. And he worked on the teams who developed the AI regulation and health data regulation for the EU. Janos uh, Tolias, welcome to you. Thanks a lot. That's very nice to be here. Can you first tell us why the European Commission um, very uh, uh, intentionally prioritized regulating AI? Yeah. Uh, just to mention that, of course, the views I am expressing will be personal, not necessarily representing the official position of the European Commission. But I could, of course, describe the uh, regulatory frameworks that we have now in place. Uh, the Basically, the story in the European Union started back in 2017, where the European Parliament and later the European Council, which is the institution that represents uh, all the 27 member states of the EU, have asked the Commission to come up with a legislative proposal on AI and specifically to look at the benefits and risks of AI. More specifically, they refer to issues like opacity, complexity, bias, autonomous, fundamental rights, ethics, liability. So they ask the Commission to consider and study all those and come up with a piece of legislation. And the Commission came up with the um, so-called AI Act or AI regulation, which was published as a proposal uh, last year, April of last year to 2021. And now it's at the European Parliament and the Council for adoption, of course, maybe amendments too. And there is four main objectives that this uh, uh, regulation aims at. First of all, it's to ensure safety of AI. Secondly, to ensure legal certainty. So also the manufacturers, they are certain about their obligations. Thirdly, to create a single market for AI in Europe. So mm. basically, if you develop, let's say, AI in France, and you follow those requirements without any obstacles, you should be able to move it throughout Europe to Sweden, mm -hmm. Italy, Greece. Uh, with a, and thirdly, to create a governance around AI and protect fundamental rights. Okay. Can I just step in here for a moment? Because I think I'm also hearing that there was something else, perhaps um, even more basic. Uh, because you had told us before as well that, um, in a sense, creating a kind of framework to regulate AI like is in place for pharmaceuticals in Europe, um, you know, it might have, it might increase the cost to develop and manufacture uh, AI, but it, I think it, you, you, you told our, our producer that it, it creates an equal level of competition. Everyone has to fulfill the requirements. And so therefore it creates trusts with physicians who could deploy or use it, right? Yeah, this is the four objectives I mentioned. Yeah. So I put them a bit into four groups. First, you are creating this piece of legislation aims to create safety. So you are feeling safe as a patient, as a physician to use it and uh, 
uh, even not being liable of using it and even trust it. So to create, let's say, boost of uptake of AI. Secondly, to ensure legal certainty, to boost basically innovation and upscale of AI because everyone, all the manufacturers would be at the same, same level playing field in the sense that they would be all obliged to do the same and no other member state in the EU because this would be, let's call it at the federal level. So mm. it will be applicable to all the member states. So the member states of the EU would not be able to come up with additional requirements. So you have a set of requirements at EU level and every startup, every company in the EU would be following those. And then that that's, would be it. Okay. So that's a, the idea of of a level a level playing field. Okay, so let's talk um, momentarily about one of those specific requirements. I understand that um, there's a requirement now about the kind of data that algorithms get trained on, that, that companies have to show through the EU approval process that they have trained their algorithms on a on a representative data set that that accurately represents the patient population across Europe. Yes, exactly. There are different obligations in the AI Act, one of which, you're right, is the data data, data governance, data quality obligations. And there, there are a series of requirements about uh, annotation, labeling, collection of data, reinforcement, or how you, yeah, all these issues of data, including the, an obligation that the training, validation, and testing data sets should consider the geographical, behavioral, and functional settings within which the high-risk AI system could be a medical device is intended to be uh, used. So in that sense, if you, let's say, develop an AI system in Tokyo and is performing while in a lab there, you will have the obligation to ensure in order to fulfill this requirement than when you when you deployed, let's say, in Sweden, in Finland, that it equally generalizes well in yeah. those countries mm. for those people. Okay, so, so Mr. Tolia, stand by for a second because I want to turn back to Professor Doshi Velez. This, this issue brings together, um, we, we talked a lot about uh, the data used to train algorithms in our ethics episode, uh, and now regulation as well. Let's bring it back to the U.S. context. I, I can see the the advantage of putting into place a requirement. Let's, let's say FDA did that said um, all AI developers have to train their algorithms on data that's representative of the American patient population. Is that possible? Where would that data come from? Does that, that, that work that's here? exactly what I was thinking, <laughs> where... I think that that ultimately has to be the goal. We don't want populations left out. And yet, currently, we have populations that are left out of our data sets. I think there absolutely has to be an obligation to be clear about who this algorithm might work well for so that you don't apply it incorrectly to a population that it might not work well for or to test it carefully as you go. Um, But ultimately, I think we need better data collection efforts to be able to achieve this goal. So there's even a further upstream challenge you're saying. Okay, here in the United States. Well, there's there's another issue that I'd like to learn how um, Europe is handling it, and it's one that we've mentioned a couple times already, and that's the need for transparency throughout this process, from the algorithm development process through the the regulatory process. And we asked Dr. Matthew Diamond um, at FDA 
about this. And and he told us that FDA has sought input from patients, for example, about what kinds of labels or what they want to know about AI tools being used in healthcare. And he said that transparency is critical uh, for each stakeholder involved with the technology. It's crucial that the appropriate information about a device, and uh, that includes its intended use, uh, how it was developed, um, its performance, and also when available, uh, its logic, it's crucial that that information is clearly communicated to stakeholders, uh, including users and patients. It's important for a number of reasons. First of all, transparency allows patients, providers, and caregivers to make informed decisions about the device. Uh, Secondly, um, that type of transparency supports proper use of device. For example, it's crucial for users of the device to understand whether a device is intended to assist rather than replace the judgment of the user. Uh, Third, transparency also has an important role in promoting health equity because, for example, if you don't understand how a device works, it may be harder to identify. Transparency fosters trust and confidence. That's Dr. Matthew Diamond at FDA. Giannis Tolias, um, the, Europe, Europe has put in something that I'll just refer to as a human supervision provision. What does that do and how does that uh, – uh, how, why is that important for the trust and transparency aspect of, of regulating AI? Yeah, thanks a lot for this. If I may come, because I think there is a, an interesting issue which was raised, or where, where do you find the data – to ensure that they're representative of the people in Europe. And this is a very good point. That's why it was actually thought of, it was considered in the EU that that would be a problem. Hence why uh, we have another piece of legislation, what is called the European Health Data Space Mm. Regulation, which was published uh, just a couple of weeks ago, 3rd of May actually, of this year, which basically provides the obligation of data holders, like a hospital, to be making their data available to a body called data access body, and then researchers, regulators would be able to access those data in a secure environment, anonymized, and so on, to be training, testing, validating algorithms. So basically, the idea is that you bring all the 27 member states, all, let's say, hospitals, or all data holders, which could be also beyond hospitals, to be basically uh, coordinating their data and researchers, startups, regulators be able to use all this pool of data. So there is a new regulation on that specific issue too. Okay. Well, actually, yeah. I'm afraid, um, uh, Janos, that with that, I'm out of time with you because the time does go very quickly. But I definitely appreciate um, this glimpse that you've given us into how Europe is handling um, uh, coming up with a new regulatory schema for AI in healthcare. So Janos Tolias, lead, legal lead on AI and AI liability uh, in healthcare for the European Commission. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Thanks a lot. It was a great pleasure to be with you today. Uh, Professor Doshi Velez, we've got about a minute left, and I have two questions for you. First of all, um, the one thing that we haven't really addressed head-on yet is the fact that everyone wants to move to a a place where um, the the constant machine learning aspect is one of the strengths that could be brought to healthcare. Um, And it seems right now that still um, FDA is looking at things like... as fixed, even though they know that constant development is going to be in the in the future. 
what do you think? What would what do we need no, to do to I'm, get ready I'm for that? Take a slightly contrary view okay. here. I don't think that algorithms in healthcare need to be learning constantly. Um, I think we have plenty of time to roll out new versions and check new versions carefully, and that is actually super important. And what I worry about, as I said before, is not only you know we have to worry about the algorithms changing, but the data and the processes changing under our feet. And that, that's why we just need, you know, post-market surveillance mechanisms to make sure that algorithms okay. are Okay, that's, that's interesting. So then I'm going to give you 10 more seconds to tell me in the next year or five years, what one thing would you like to see in place uh, uh, from regulators? So as I mentioned earlier, there's some really great checklists out there um, that are being developed in the last year in terms of transparency. I would love to see those adopted. Um, I think transparency is the way we're going to get um, algorithms that are safe and fair and effective. Okay. So transparency keeps coming up as a key part of, of good future regulation here. And we have specific ways to do it. Finale doshi Velez, the Gordon McKay Professor of Computer Science at Harvard University and head of the Data to Actionable Knowledge Group at Harvard Computer Science. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Coming up in one week, our final episode of our special series, Smarter Health, Artificial Intelligence, and the Future of American Healthcare. We've talked about the tech. We've talked about ethics. Today, we talked about regulation. Now it's time to talk about you and how AI and healthcare could change your care. In the end, the potential benefit has to be to the patient. There's this tug of war between advancements in technology and how that is going to affect cost of healthcare. So we want to... We want to be able to improve health, but at an affordable cost. That's Dr. Sumi Chug, cardiologist and director of the Division of Artificial Intelligence at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. He'll join us. So will Stacey Hurt. She's a cancer survivor and patient advocate. you got to know that your physician has your back. You know, I mean, which my oncologist always had my back. Any technology that occurs should only enhance that. It should not put any distance between that. Patients and doctors and the relationship between them. That is the fourth and final episode of our series, Smarter Health, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of American Healthcare, next Friday. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. On Point is a production of WBUR Boston and is distributed by APM, American Public Media.